Romans, <laughs> chapter 12. I'm really tempted to uh, just start into the, the sermon and just let this ride. But uh, as you flip to Romans, chapter 12, I have a story to tell you. This has really nothing to do with Halloween, by the way. The fact that today is Halloween is in some ways a coincidence, maybe some ways the driver to how we got to this moment. Uh, this is actually a story about COVID. And April 2020, uh, we start back in a digital form at Soma Downtown. So, of course, in March 2020, everybody shuts down for a while. We're trying to, like, you know, figure out how we, you know, gather together in some way. In the April 2020, we start back with a digital gathering on Instagram. And we decide afterwards we were going to have a... Zoom call in which to, you know, gather together to talk, to be able to have some connection that would, you know, be similar to what we have after normal gathering. And on one of the maybe first, second Zoom calls is a member and friend and part of my missional community, Caleb Blantrip. And if you know Caleb, yeah, right, well, uh, hold on, don't applaud him. He doesn't deserve applause for this. Um, either way, on the Zoom call, he is, is this knitting? Is this crocheting? Crocheting, crocheting, okay. <laughs> that was a dirty look. All right, it was uh, crocheting. Uh, he was crocheting, and I'm going to get some of the details a bit wrong here, but forgive me, it's been a little bit. And it's been a season since then. Uh, he's crocheting an octopus at the time. And I exa don't exactly remember how we got to the point of just saying, like, how large is this octopus going to be? Or, you know, is there some way that we could, like, you know, is it something that you could get is big enough to, like, make an entire suit of an octopus? And I think he answered somewhat to the point of, like, I probably could do that. And I say to him with all the boldness that I have taught many of teaching here, say, if you make an octopus suit, I'll wear it on a Sunday. <laughs> 2020 comes and goes. And then in uh, our missional community uh, group me, there becomes significant... Uh, energy towards October 31st. It's Halloween, maybe we could, and the Caleb starts saying, hey, I've been working on this. And we kind of like make that the final deadline, at least I do in my mind. Uh, and man, I, the MC crowd funded it. Uh, it's, uh, here we are. So I am, uh, I'm a man of my word. And here we are, yeah, all right. Uh, this actually has somewhat of relevancy, I'm going to take this down, uh, has somewhat relevancy of actually what we're talking about today. I know you're like, you're trying to work this in as a prop. Yes, I am. Um, because we're talking about in a vision series. We are talking about what is Soma Downtown Church? Who are we as a church? We want to zoom in, and as Jackson Jess, uh, who designed the front cover of your worship guide, did with glasses that are focusing in on the image of the city, they're saying, who are we, and how do we focus in on identity as a church. And we are centering our teaching around the uh, mission statement that we developed about a year ago when we became uh, what was once uh, three Soma congregations, and then we all became individual 501c3s, individual churches. And so we said, okay, Soma downtown, how do we take our mission language and make it specific to who we are? And we actually have this on the slide. Can you put the entire statement slide up there? Uh, the next one, please. So we decided with this. We said, this is a, a who we are and who we want to continue to aspire to be, a Christ-led family being formed into the image of Jesus in community to build God's kingdom in our community. 
And so we decided, hey, we want to take this and we want to tell you where do we see scripturally how these, this language comes out of uh, the scripture and applies to us where we are now in 2021. And as well as we want to take this series to just break this down and say, hey, we fought hard over these words. We went back and forth. We went, you know, there was much conversation amongst our eldership team and amongst, you know, as we put this out to other leaders and said like, hey, does this feel right? Does this fit who we are? And we want to break down last week, John taught about what does it mean for us to be a Christ-led family? And this week, I want to zoom in on just one word, and that is family. In order to do that, I want to talk about since the beginning of the church, and I mean the beginning of the church, like early church as the New Testament's being written, the church has struggled with the idea of syncretism. Syncretism is the capacity for the church to take on the surrounding culture and to become like the surrounding culture. I mean, this is actually even before the early church. You get to even in the Old Testament, you talk about uh, God regularly saying to Israel, hey, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be a distinct people. I want you to be with your neighbors, with amongst those who you were living amongst, but I want you to be a people that is separate and set apart so that you will live out my teaching and people will see this is what God is like through you. And regularly, there is the common problem of the church to continually become, uh, Israel at this point, to be continually become not just amongst their neighbors, but to become exactly like them, taking on their gods, taking on their practices, taking on child sacrifice, taking on all the things that come along with these things, like setting up idols and trying to please God as if he's an angry father who needs to be assuaged. And so then in the early church, you see it too. You see Paul, when he writes the Colossians, he's writing, and many people say that one of the biggest things he's trying to focus on in that letter is saying, hey, I want you to be distinct as a people, and you're taking on in Colossae all these forms of the Colossians, which, again, I want you to be amongst the people, but I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. You hear John using that exact language. And so we often, as a church, need to be asking ourselves, because, again, it is the church has tried to battle this in many ways. Sometimes they've completely pulled back and separated. But yet that doesn't take seriously the idea of being in the world. He says, no, I want you to be in it. I want you to have neighbors that are, have, will have nothing to do with Jesus, would otherwise have nothing to do with the church. But I want you to be living amongst them. And I want you to be, fill your lives with the people who are, yes, in the church and also outside of the church. But then as you do that, you continually examine how do we take on the culture in that which we're in. And to start off this morning, to talk about church's family, I want to first talk about what the church is as we take on the culture of where we are right now in 21st century America. And I think uh, Richard Halverson, the chaplain, uh, the former chaplain of the United States Senate, actually in a address said it really well. He said this, in the beginning, the church was a, a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. He's saying, you know, Greece was all about philosophy. They're all about exchanging ideas. And he said, in Greece, there was a tendency, if the church was going to syncretize to Greek culture, to become more of just ideas. And how does this philosophically affect my mind, but doesn't change my actions and my behavior? He said, where, uh, so he moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution. That is also known as the Catholic Church today, obviously. We know that there's a very effective institution that was created. He said, next, it moved to Europe where it became a culture. This was the idea that, yes, Christianity was just something of who you were. It was your culture, it was your family background, it was your tradition, but it wasn't necessarily a fellowship of men and women at this point. And he said, and finally, it moved to America, 
where it became an enterprise. It makes sense if you think about who we are as Americans. There are beautiful things about what it is to be an American. There's beautiful things about what it is to be America. I think in many ways there's you know, a, a lot of God that has, uh, has shaped and, and moved in the culture of America that I am grateful for today. But we also have to recognize there are a few things that if the church is going to take on the culture and the aspects of which are the idols of America, they'd be probably things like consumerism. We talk about this regularly. This isn't surprising. Ever since World War II, when we pull out of the Great Depression with the uh, and basically creating industry to create what was at that point preparing the world for uh, preparing America and the world for war, we also then get out of that and we realize we built all these factories and now how do we keep these factories running? And then I remember, I forget who it is who said it, but they said in order to keep these factories open and our economy running, America has to be taught to consume. And we must be taught to be able to fill our lives with whatever we feel like is missing within us with some consumable product. Now, consuming is not, it's, you're, you're not avoiding it. Every time you eat something, every time you read something, every time, even having this service right now, you are consuming in some ways something that is being put on, a service that is being put together. However, it's not a wrong thing to consume, but yet consumerism became the idea that everything that is aching within me can be filled through consuming of a good or a service or an experience. I would say also individualism. Again, America is known for the idea where we became less of the idea of what is your collective, what is your unit, do, believe, think, what is that tradition, and who are you as an individual? This also actually is a beneficial thing throughout the history of the church because it finally points the spotlight not to, hey, I'm a Christian because my family is, but they say, hey, what do you believe? How do you, what do you do with the idea that Jesus is saying I, that whoever believes in me should have eternal life? How do you wrestle with that question? Individualism is actually not necessarily an entirely negative thing. However, it also creates a system and a culture which, again, combined with consumerism, is how do things primarily please or affect or serve me? And then we have uh, sectarianism, which was, of course, birthed in America, was the idea that we were trying to break away from a national state-ran church and try to say, hey, no, we want to have freedom religion, freedom, which, uh, again, this is a, probably a beautiful and beneficial practice and, and intrinsic reality of America. But it also then creates this idea that, man, if the church is not going well here and it's individual church, then we'll start our own thing. We'll split the church over dividing, you know, over whatever kind of like discussion or debate that's going on, and we become two churches, and those churches become four churches, which uh, has a lot to do with, you know, seeing church grow and expand and move and plant, and there's a lot of th things that can be beneficial about that, but it can also create a culture in which we just continue to create competitive and competitive and competitive markets. And then lastly is capitalism. And I'm not actually here to bash on capitalism. I believe, I think it was Winston Churchill who said capitalism. He said it's the best system of otherwise imperfect systems. And the issue, though, when it comes to church and the free market is that it allows, the free market allows the American dream, right? You can come here, you can build it, you can put it together, you can build it and scale it, but then that gets applied to church where church obviously then becomes something that we build and we scale and we reproduce and it becomes just another business, or as Richard Halverson said, an enterprise. Sky Jatani is a pastor and an author, and he wrote in 2012 in Christianity Today, he coined a term called the evangelical industrial complex. He was coming off of the idea of the military industrial complex, which 
Uh, that term was coined by Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1961 as he gives his final speech as president, and most of his speech is actually centered around war and around the building of the military, because what Dwight D. Eisenhower decides that one of the main ideas he wants to communicate in his final address is that he says, hey, we as America have created an entire industry that is built around, is employing, and is keeping the economy moving by preparing us to be militaristically ready. He said, it turns out it's a good thing. It helps us be prepared if we need to engage in combat. But he says at the same time, and he warns the country in his speech, he says, you have to be careful when you create an industry that has to move forward to continue to create more and more readiness, more and more budget, more and more building this idea around being prepared for military. The idea is, you, if you have an uh, industry that has to be built around that, it can never be finished. It can never cross the finish line. And so that's why we find ourselves now, as a country, we have three times the military budget than any other country in the world. There's, you could argue pros and cons all over. I'm not here to make that debate. I'm here to merely address this as it is a reality. And Sky Jatani, again, in his article, compares this and he says, there's similarly become an evangelical industrial complex. And he describes it as a network of churches and books and Christian media companies and conferences and events that all need each other to survive. He said, when Christian subculture ideas of like bookstores and conferences and events, all these things get started, they realize in order to have these conferences, in order to have books, they have to have content, and they have to have that content created by people that people want to hear from. And so they decided, how do we basically develop people that are, people want to hear from? Well, the first thing they do is they start going to people who have large churches or they have large, uh, they didn't have social media at that point, but some sort of large following, which probably would have been radio at the time, and they start platforming them and they say, hey, as we platform you, you get a little bit more and more attention and as you do, your book sales grow. And then as we have you in conferences, we also have people on like the secondary stage and these are people who maybe have smaller followings. They're still big, but they're not as big. And we can put them on a secondary stage and we can start to grow awareness around them and it continues to build up and up and up. And you combine this with, in a world today, I mean, I've been to the conferences, I've been around, I've talked with, and there is a lot of talk of Christian leaders to be reading Jim Collins, Good to Great, Built to Last, fantastic books on business, or consuming large amounts of leadership podcasts of how do you make it more efficient, how do you make it more effective, how do you build it, how do you scale it. And I will say there's even like this real genuine heart behind the idea of how can we make it builder? Why? Because we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We want everyone to hear the gospel. We want every single person to know that Jesus has come, has lived, has died, and has bought resurrection through his death and is now giving it to all who would believe in him and is building a kingdom. But the problem is that the kingdom you win them with is the kingdom you win them to. And so when it is built around this idea of sleeker and more efficient and more effective and building an experience, you end up building, well, I think actually maybe to put this in the words uh, of James Gilmore, who was also interviewed by Christian today. He is the author of The Experience Economy. He's an economist, and 
his book exploded when he was all of a sudden talking about the idea that our, our culture has moved from a goods and service economy from the Industrial Revolution. Uh, so we were first an agra agrarian uh, economy. The economy was built on what you could draw from the land and how you could produce goods in that way. And then we moved with the Industrial Revolution to a goods and services economy. How could you take those materials and put them into goods or services and then expand upon there? And he says we've shifted again to the experience economy in which now most goods and services or, or businesses are created to create an experience. And he said, when you think about it, he was in Chicago at the time. He said, think about the American Girl store. If you've been to Chicago, if you've been down to downtown Chicago, he said the American Girl store was like the perfect experience. He said, when people walk in, they're like, where's the store? Because he said, the whole thing is the store. There's no price tags, but yet you can buy or purchase everything. There's restaurants in which you can go and attend and have an experiences of being an American girl and all leading up to the idea where you buy these cards that are both like, they're like, memorabilia, but they're also like wish lists to be able to dream of more and more American girls. And then the books, and then of course, building up the ultimate experience of purchasing the doll. And he said, this was a perfect experience of what the experience economy was. Bring them in and give them an experience. He said, people have always had experiences in life, but now they're expecting companies to do it for them. And so James Gilmore wrote this book, It Explodes, and there was an understanding of Christianity today that this was exploding with churches and pastors. And it's exploding with churches and pastors because they were all trying to say, like, how do we create an experience? And so they asked him specifically, how does the experience economy apply to the church? And he said this, it doesn't. When the church gets into the business of staging experiences, that quickly becomes idolatry. He says the organized church should never try to stage an experience of God. Increasingly, you will find people talking about the worship experience rather than the worship that reflects what is happening in the outside world. He said, I'm dismayed to see the church abandon the means of grace that God orders, simply to conform to the pattern of this world. The idea of what am I getting, I think, is the problem with contemporary Christianity. God is the audience of worship. What you get is, quite frankly, irrelevant as a starting point. People may come expecting a return at first. Give me, feed me, make me feel good. But they should be led to say, hey, this isn't about me. God, worship is to glorify you. The argument is you must provide something of value, but the only thing of value the church has to offer is the gospel. The belief that the one result of the emerging experience, or I believe the one result of the emerging experience economy will be the longing for authenticity. To the extent the church stages worldly experiences, it will lose its effectiveness. He goes on to tell an experience of when he invited a friend uh, when he was visiting one time to come to a church, but he said he was in a church where they just set up in a gymnasium and it was all folding chairs and kind of like styrofoam cups. And he said, like, afterwards, he felt the need to, like, apologize to his friend. He said, like, hey, I'm sorry about the worship services today. And he said, no, actually, he said, the fact that you guys all wanted to come together and be together today over something that was otherwise probably not all overwhelmingly attractive, he said, that alone spoke to me. Because... The reality is, we can fall into the trap of church shopping. How was church? And we can do that. I mean, you can do that with anything. You can do that with, yes, the overall worship experience, the overall experience of the church. You can do that with the children's ministry or the programs. How does this help guide, shape, develop, grow me? You can do that with truth. You know, this is a church that, you know, they are teaching in a way that's robust and encouraging and feeding my soul. 
None of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to have a robust worship experience. It's not wrong to have programs that develop and grow and disciple and shepherd, whether that be children, adults, otherwise. It's not wrong to have robust teaching that is encouraging and beneficial to the church. Where it becomes wrong, as James Gilmore says, is when we start to begin in our minds to package it together as, what do I get from this? Because the fruit of what we see, I think, of this in our world today is the constant sense of fading experience. I am experiencing grace and something to the worship experience, but again, it fades by Wednesday or it fades by Sunday afternoon, and I'm constantly in a need of more teaching, more content, more experience, more driven. To the point is, I have no capacity to just be with Jesus, to be a disciple of him in and of my own right. And churches have high turnover. There was a reveal study that was released, I believe actually around the same time of 2013, 2014, in which they had interviewed qualitative data all over the country, and many people saw there was a high churn and burn culture across denominations, across style of just people coming in and moving out, and just basically, I'm here for a season, and then I move on. And then we see pastor and leader burnout culture because there is an unrealistic amount of weight to create something that is all-encompassing and attractive and bigger and better and faster and sleeker and more efficient. I remember an experience, it was probably summer of 2017. We had been meeting as a church since fall of 2015, and we're coming up, yeah, but our third anniversary was in the near future. And it was a specific Sunday in which I got a call when I was about like two minutes away from the Westminster Center here uh, from Megan Rogg, our kids director at the time, saying, uh, all the key codes are not working. And... I arrive, and sure enough, we are like have everyone there ready to put on a gathering, ready to set up and tear down all the illustrious things that we do to create the experience here. And we need it takes some time. It doesn't take a ton of time. It takes some time, and the amount of people we have, it takes more time than you would think. But either way, we realize we can't get in. We're calling. We're you know calling you know exec team members of Westminster board members. We finally get a hold of a board member who gets a hold of the executive director who gets a hold of a building guy who comes and lets us in. And we come in, and I think we have like a half hour. And normally it was probably going to be like an hour and a half. And so we like are throwing stuff up. We're getting things good. And we put it all up, and it gets together. And we all kind of sit there buzzed and exhausted, and the gathering goes up. And this week I was not teaching. I was doing liturgy. And I remember just like being there, exhausted. We made it. We crossed the finish line. And I remember looking out and saying, this doesn't feel like family. 
This doesn't feel like we know each other. This doesn't feel like a lot of what we're trying to teach about what the church is. It feels like, yeah, we got an event up and going and it moved and it happened, but it just didn't feel like what it was supposed to. Because that's the reality. Church is not a business. It's not a speaking event. It's not a music event. It's not a content creator. It's not created for you to get something. Church is a family. You see this in the New Testament all throughout. This has been all my intro, by the way. Here we go. (laughs) You see this throughout the New Testament. I'm going to touch down in Romans 12 and show this, but I could have picked any New Testament letter. Whenever Paul is writing back to his church and trying to give them a vision of what it is to be the church, he doesn't talk about organization. I mean, a little bit in 1 Corinthians. He'd be like, he talks about orderly worship. Yeah, he gives like a chapter. He doesn't talk about building and scaling. But instead, in each one, and I would invite you to read through each of the New Testament epistles, and you will find more or less this pattern, save a few that have uniquenesses to them, more or less the regular pattern of Paul as he writes his letter is fairly repetitive. The first section, he is going to give a condensed theology of what it is to know Jesus, the grace of God, and what it is to basically understand an entire theology of Jesus, the church, God coming in, sanctifying sinners. And then he will always pivot to then talking about something like he does in Romans 12. Let's, talk, let's read it together. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So everything that we just talked about for the first 11 chapters. I appeal to you now because of who God is, what he's done, how he's reconciled us together, how he has purchased us back into creating a new kingdom with us. He says, I appeal to you, uh, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by the testing you may discern what is the will of God that is good and acceptable and perfect. So he says, hey, I want you to come in. First, he says brothers, and of course that brothers is, you know, in plural languages, often just the male plural is meant to mean the male and female plural. So you could, and many people have translated this to, I appeal to this family that through the mercies of God that you are going to present yourself a living sacrifice by the renewing of your mind so that you may know the will of God. I've made this point, by the way, that everybody always wants to know the will of God. The Bible is not silent about it. Every single, not every single, but almost every epistle that we're going to have that I talk about has this uh, structure is going to say, this is the will of God for you. And it's going to now going to list something that I'm going to tell you about. The will of God is ultimately not that concerned about the 0.01% of the decisions you have to make about who you marry, what you do, or where you live. It is very concerned about the 99.9% of decisions you make every single day of your life. As if to imply, hey, follow into what the will of God is for you in the, all the little decisions in your life and those big 
0.01 decisions will take care of themselves. He says, here's what the good is, the, uh, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's what it is. For by the grace of God given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, to be humble, a prerequisite for this kind of community that he's going to talk about, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned to you. For, as one body, or for in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So first Paul says, hey, family, hey, brothers, or brothers and sisters, or family together. He first makes a family metaphor. Now he's going to make an even more intimate metaphor, is that you are all part of a body. You're all part of just one individual body, and you all have different parts. And we know this. I have a head. I have on my head. I have eyes and ears and tongue. They all are part of my body, but they all do different things. And so he's going to say, so that we are many, are one body in Christ and individual members of uh, one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, and the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Truly love each other, not just in word, but learn to love each other from the heart. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. He says, hey, I want you to give generously to one another and I want you to invite people into your homes. Bring people in. Give them a warm bed. Give them a warm meal. Show hospitality to one another. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not uh, curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Hey, I want you to be able to be a place where you can come and you know each other and care for each other so well. You know what's going on in your lives and you can sit down and you can mourn with those who are mourning and weep with those who weep. But you also should not be a place where it's like off limits to be joyful around you, that we should be a culture that we can be simultaneously in a relationship with one person we're weeping with who is experiencing loss and experiencing one who is experiencing great joy and fruit. And, and it is neither a, I have to diminish my accomplishments around here or that I can't actually let you know how much I'm struggling in this moment, but both can be in my present relationships with my brothers and sisters. <sighs> Lost my place, but here we go. Was it? 16. Thank you, Tayshon. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. That's family right there. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. One thing that's interesting about this text is that the most common version of a command is one to be humble. It's regularly repeated. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God. Hey, you want to be in a relationship with one another? I don't want you to worry about you caring for your reputation, you caring about having to get back to that person. You leave that to the will of God. Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. You want to wake somebody up from what they're doing? Uh, serve them with love and kindness rather than revenge. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's going to go on in the rest of these chapters to be describing what it is to be in relationships with one another. 
And in the Romans instances, this is going to be Jews and Gentiles in relationship together, which is why he's going to focus a lot on forgiveness and loving your enemy and forgiving one another, being humble towards the other, being outdoing the other in, in love and honor because he recognizes these two groups historically have hated and opposed each other. But he's going to do that in Romans. He's going to do it in Galatians. He's going to do it in Ephesians. He's going to do it in 1 Corinthians. He's going to do it in Colossians. He's going to regularly make the appeal to all people, hey, now in light of everything that God has done for you, what is it to do the will of God? Be a family together. Love one another. What is the church? It's not a business. It's not an event. It's not an experience. It's a family. All, of, again, of the New Testament, when you read these letters, you can take these and think that, take them all as like, okay, okay, these are like individual commands, except we have to recognize that we're reading it in English, and English does not have a plural you form. But Greek does. And everything that is written to these, in these letters that are commands are all written in the plural you. I guess in some ways, of course, in Texas, we have a y'all. And so we understand the idea of a concept of a plural you. And basically, that's our best entrance in, is that the entire New Testament is, hey, y'all outdo one another in love and good and honor. Y'all repay not evil for evil, but evil for good. One way that we pointed this out in the past is uh, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, which I'm like all of you. I always just take that to be like, okay, if I have the Spirit, I am going to personally experience love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I'm going to have all these just flowing out of me. The problem is, is I'm not reading it in its original language where we find out that all of those fruit of the Spirit are in a plural you form. What is the fruit of Spirit? Not that you would just be an individual made of love. Not that you would have some inner tranquility and peace, even though everything is falling down around you. What is the fruit of spirit? They're all about relationships. When you have the spirit within you, you will be filled in your relationships with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. All of a sudden, when you read them all, an idea of a plural you relationship way, they take on a completely different context. Because all of the New Testament, all of the letters are assuming the idea that we are a family and we are a church together by living out the one anothering, the commands in a deep, intimate relationship. That's where the Spirit shows up. It's not just some mystical union I find on a mountain. It's when I forgive somebody who has seriously wronged me. It's when I'm patient with someone who I just think always just has to say the last word every single time. It's when I show up even at great expense to my own time, my own resources, and I make it work because I know you need help today. I know you need encouragement today. It's when you do that for me. That's the Spirit of God showing up working out the will of God, which is the church being a family. I remember um, 
after that Sunday and actually leading up to that Sunday when I was kind of that moment of just like, man, we need to shift some things. We need to kind of like reshift how we built some of the ways that we are. Like, I want this not to just be like we're all coming together, put on an event. I want this to be that we actually, when people come in, they actually know each other. They actually want to be together. They actually like have not just seen each other on a Sunday, but they've known each other throughout the week, not just in the missional communities, but they know each other across from the missional communities. And they are continually learning what it is to be one family, be, as the word soma means in Greek, by the way, a body. And I remember, man, 2017, 2018, 2019, I went, and I mean, everyone who knows me and was here during those times knew that I went some deep cycles of depression and anxiety. And while there was a lot going on there and a lot that I've worked out in counseling and in relationship with my brothers and sisters, there's also one reality that I knew was present. Part of it was just like, I feel like I have no idea how to do it any differently because every conference, every retreat, every person is just saying, no, just build an event and build it and scale it and you've done something. You've fulfilled the Great Commission or been a part of it. And nobody really knew. I mean, I don't blame anybody for building it that way. Don't blame us for building it that way. It was just what we knew. And you just do what you know. And there was no one saying anything different. I remember sitting down with, um, you know, Nate Dunleavy, who's a, just a pastor at Summit Northwest and is a friend and a mentor. And I just remember thinking, like, man, I just, I, I don't know how to do it any differently. And he looked at me and said, stop trying to be pastor or CEO. Be a shepherd. Be a brother. Sit with people. Listen to them, really listen to them. When they express something that they need, show up and meet it. That was the concept that we've talked about several times of how do we do this? How do we do the Romans 12 and, and all the other texts? One way that we talked about that conceptually is just like what I, was, what I learned in that experience of sitting down with Nate over the several different times and experience him and his wife and his family and someone Northwest doing this well for one another. He said, just show up and pass people's tests. And what he meant by this, and I've said this before, but I just want to just say this again and again because I feel like it really does permeate our culture, is that people as a rule don't actually believe we're loved by anyone. One of the most fundamental calls of all of humanity is to receive love. It is one of the hardest things you will learn to do. And he said, people don't believe they're loved by anyone. And so what will happen is if you actually approach someone and are pursuing them and are texting them and encouraging them or like, you know, inviting them over, eventually what will happen is somebody will give a test, which is, I want to ask something of you because you feel like you're trying to show me that you love me, but I want to either find out if this is real or not. So I'm going to ask for something that I'm a little bit nervous about. I'm a little bit worried about because I'm afraid that you will show that just like everybody, you don't actually love me. He said, here's your main goal. Recognize that test and pass it. As you do, you begin to build trust with people who, that this person isn't just showing up and saying they love me, they actually are willing to sacrifice some level of who they are, what they have, to actually show me that they love me. And every time you pass a test, you drop into another layer of trust and people being able to actually give more of their soul to you. I have both passed and failed many tests. I have given tests that people have both passed and failed. 
It is just the reality of who we are as humans. But one way that we always say in our language is just, hey, how does this look like being a family? We look to show up, to love, to pursue each other, and recognize that when somebody asks something, they're just like, man, that's asking a lot. I have to always ask myself, is this the test? I'll just go ahead and tell you. I always answer. The answer is probably yes. And so I say, okay. I call or I text my wife or I call or text somebody from our MC and say, what do we do? How do we get there? How do we show up? Because I don't know if this is a test, but I don't want to risk the fact that it might be. Again, I haven't made everyone. We're limited. We're human. We fall short. But it's one way that we seek to show up and provide for one another. One way that we do this around here is we show hospitality to one another. I, I love uh, Rosaria Butterfield and her book, uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She just gets the language of this radical, ordinary hospitality. Meaning, what is it to be family? It's having each other in our homes. Austin Smith is one of this, I think, a great example of this. He, as a missional community leader and as just, I don't know, just a good brother in our community, he just regularly wants to show up and invite people to dinner, take them out to dinner. He always says, like, people always assume, like, you know, that the married couple or the family should be doing this. So I always want, as a single guy, to be the one who's inviting, who's making meals, who's, who's involving myself in their lives. And I sat down with Austin this week, and I said, man, you are a wild success when it comes to building a community and the missional community that you've built around you because, man, I see that missional community and I see people who really care about each other, who show up for one another, who are in each other's lives. He didn't do anything other than just show radically ordinary hospitality, getting meals with people, sitting with people. And as people take that and receive that, they become multipliers of it. A simple way to do this, man, just start texting and checking in with people, encouraging them. I mean, I don't know a single person who I've texted regularly who I don't get the sense of, man, maybe the best thing I can do right now is encourage them. I got to tell you, I have not received, I've not failed to receive somebody sending me a text of encouragement. And I mean, there's no way to like in our world today, like use an exclamation point to actually really make you feel like I'm excited because we just use them all the time. <laughs> but like, I want to have some like button on the texting app that just communicates, hey, this really meant a lot to me. I don't think I've, I, I've rarely received a text of encouragement that hasn't on some level brought me to a level of tears or a level of, of just gratefulness that somebody would think of me, would say just a simple, hey, I really appreciate what you did this past week. I really appreciate how you're doing this in the church. I really appreciate how you see this in your parenting. I mean, because we're all working on receiving love. We're all needing to actually believe that somebody cares about us. We talk about, and we'll talk about this a bit next week, embodying the truths of scripture to one another. Because yes, I can know in my head that I am loved by God. But as we always say, my felt experience, I am what I can produce. 
I am what my body and my image shows to the world. I am how I provide value and how I earn your respect in this world. And what I need is I need brothers and sisters around me that when I just fail, and I mean I just like fail epically, you know, don't push away, but they push it. They don't say, well, it's kind of inconvenient to be in relationship with you right now. They say, no, this is my opportunity to embody the fact that Christ doesn't leave you in this moment. This is my chance to embody the fact that we're a family. We're not co-experience havers. You're my brother, you're my sister. It's, as we talk about regularly around here as well, seeing Sunday mornings or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings as just the date night on the calendar, not the sum total of the relationship. And I get sometimes you're like, man, like, I don't know, like I'm in this season and like, I, like what I have is Sundays. That's what I can connect with right now. Absolutely. That's why it's the date night on the calendars because life gets busy and sometimes you just need something pre-planned, set up. You know it's going to be there so you can just be in relationship and encourage one another and connect with one another and rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep or just simply, you know, encourage each other to love and good deeds as long as it's called the day. And that's why we have Sunday in place and that's why we have the missional community gathering on the evening in place. But if in all seasons... That's the sum total of my relationship, like just the same thing with the actual date night with my wife. Sunday night is date night. We connect, we sit across each other sometimes in some weeks, particularly in the fall. That's all we get. That's it. That's like the sum total of like our connection with each other in the week. I mean, not totally, but it kind of feels that way. But if that's all our marriage is all the time, then that is ultimately not a full, healthy relationship. That's why we say make this is date night. This is the experience that we have it on the calendar, but I want to be in people's lives on Mondays, on Fridays, on Saturdays, on days when they really need someone to show up. And so it's being in people's homes, it's being at people's dinner tables, it's being in people's text threads. There's all different kinds of ways. But let me, um, let me, before we just say like, okay, great, so go, go and do that or let that, you know, just be permeating all throughout. Let me say this. This is constantly aspirational. Because we live in a culture that I'm more inclined to individually roll back into myself. I'm in a culture that is like my schedule is so jam-packed that I have to intentionally find ways to creatively say, no, how am I going to reach out to brothers and sisters? How am I going to be in people's lives? How am I going to sacrifice and recognize my time and my calendar cannot entirely be my own? And that in itself is a countercultural act. And I'm going to regularly fail at it. But I'll also say this. It's not that romantic. I can make it sound romantic right now. I can tell you a story about how I'm passing a test to my MC right now by wearing an octopus costume on a Sunday. <laughs> but in reality, I mean, even in the New Testament, it's not romantic. I mean, 
you realize that all these were written because they were failing at this. Because they were all saying, hey, you two who are fighting, stop it. Hey, you guys who are suing each other, would you just work this out? Hey, you guys who are regularly like sinning against one another and finding ways to do it in more spectacular ways, like that's not what the grace of God is meant to afford to you. This is not how it is to be a family. I mean, Paul's regular motivation for writing these letters is the fact that these are real questions or real problems. And he's regularly saying the reason he has to say to each church, hey, love one another, forgive each other for how you have fallen short, regularly show up for each other, give generously to each other, make your schedule and your time and your life not your own, is because they are prone to not. And we all are. I mean, everyone looks at, you know, Acts 2 and like the church, like sharing all things in common and being all together, like it's so romantic. Yeah, and then like in a chapter and a half, people are dying at gatherings and they're all breaking up and they're being, you know, they're like running everywhere and they're like, you know, fighting and they're, you know, regularly persecuting. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in Acts, we just went through it, that is like less than ideal and romantic. It is a mixed bag. And I will say, this constantly is going to be building up and falling apart. I mentioned, you know, Nate and Deb Dunleavy, again, who are just mentors of mine, but Deb Dunleavy wrote a book called Laughing at the Dark, in which she has this analogy. She said, like, it's like pursuing beautiful things and, and the kingdom and people's lives is like regularly building up little tiny fires and then building another fire over here and then this fire goes out and then you build up, go back to that one and that one goes out and then you maybe get two going at one time like this is awesome, you turn to another and then they're all out again. And he said it's like, she says it's regularly like building up these fires that are constantly extinguishing. And she said when that happens, when community comes together and then people move or disperse or things happen or seasons change or, you know, marriage and kids and things are constantly evolving. It constantly feels like you're building just a little bit of energy only just to constantly have it go out and build it again. And I will admit, after trying this just even for a few years, that's commonly the experience. I feel like she nailed it with that illustration. It doesn't make it any less the call. It doesn't make it any less worthy of giving everything to it. And I will say, every single time that something goes out, somebody walks away, some, you know, just things happen through natural circumstance, somebody betrays your trust, you know, all the things that are going to happen. I am then tempted, and my wife and I are often tempted to say, like, are we doing this right? Is any of this worth it? Something that we've heard Nate and Deb say, too. We're like, oh, at least they're saying it, too. Um, but then we just constantly go back to scripture. And I think about just the moment where the disciples are just like, hey, look at everything that we've given up for you and look at everything that we've sacrificed. And this is really hard. And Jesus is just like, yeah, but you, everything is seen by God. Everything that you've given or sacrificed or done, it's, it's all going to be rewarded, even the cups of cold water, as I'm regularly astonished by, so point out regularly to you. Like, it's all being tracked and counted and built together. And so, yes, maybe you feel like in this life you're just constantly building little fires to watch them extinguish over and over again. It's probably why Paul felt like he had to write again and again and again, do this. This is where life is found. It's not romantic. It's not easy. It doesn't work out for very long in any given season. 
but it's the call. And every once in a while, something does build into a beautiful blaze for a fire, and it lasts for a season, and it's wonderful, and it's encouraging. And then it extinguishes, and you start again. And I'll say this lastly. You are called to be the creator of this community, not the other person to you. And so as a community, we can either be the one of like, man, where's this? Like, who's going to show up and pursue me? I don't care if this is, you know, you've only been here for a week. I'm saying this is the call not by, you know, like you're like, whoa, this church is like asking a lot of me. No, scripture is asking a lot of you. And it's been asking that all the time. And so I can sit there and be like, man, no one's pursuing me. That's not my call is saying, hey, how are you pursued? It's to outdo the other. And so I'm never sitting there around being like, man, who's pursuing me? I'm just going to pursue, and, and I'm going to trust that if I care and scatter the seed widely and shepherd and do that, then it's going to eventually, over time, there will be times and places where people return that love to me, and they have. Don't let me fool you in the sense where, like, man, no one's ever texted me. Like, everyone's going to text me today. No, it's fine. You're like, you have. You've done it. You're wonderful. You're a beautiful family to me, and I thank you for that. But it's always the call comes back to not the other person, but you. I got to end. But let's do something that they've done throughout history, which is to share a family meal. The family meal we've taken communion. And the night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. And they all took and together, they remembered this truth as a family, and they ate. Take and eat. And then he poured the cup, and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And as a family, take and drink. Let's pray. Father God, we pray for you to build us into a family. And Lord, I pray for you to energize those who are exhausted in building the fires and them going out, to give vulnerability to those who are trying to withhold themselves and to trying to hold their life together by themselves. Lord, let us be a people that knows each other, that shows hospitality to each other, that forgives each other, that outdoes one another in love, that bears one, another bur no, one another's burden. Because ultimately, that's what it is to be the church as we point one another to Jesus and invite people into not an event, not a business, not an experience, but a family. In Jesus' name, amen.